Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Julian Gold. Julian, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today, I'm joined by Julian Gold. Julian, thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure, Jake. How are you? Very well. So, you are a greyhound punter, and I want to get stuck into that. Uh, but as always, before we before we dig in, just a bit about your background, if you if you can, to get us started here. I suppose, unlike most of your guests you've had on the show, I don't have, have a family history in racing. I don't have a family history in, in uh, gambling either. For me, it all started uh, when I finished school. Uh, and a number of my mates and I used to uh, go up to the Cremorne TAB in Sydney on a Saturday afternoon and, uh, and bet on the horses. Um, I should say that one of the guys I uh, used to go up to the TAB with, a fellow called Chris Hancock, his father, Ron, was a uh, professional gambler and quite a successful one back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And Chris used to turn up to the Cremorne TAB with a set of prices for the, uh, the horses in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, those prices, I believe, came from a guy called Arthur Harris, who I know a few of your uh, guests have talked about over the last uh, couple of seasons. So he provided the, the target prices, and uh, for us, 18-year-olds just out of uh, just out of school, we found that if we were disciplined, followed the prices, only bet when there was an, an over, we could make money out of this, which was fantastic. So we used to go to the TAB and. Uh, then after a period of time, we graduated from there to going out to the uh, the track each Saturday. This is the horses, whether it be uh, Rose Hill or Randwick or Canterbury or, or Warwick Farm, uh, realising that we're enhancing our chance of getting an over if we had more than just the TAB to bet on, if we had a choice of betting on uh, bookmakers as well. So we did that and uh, times were good. And after a big day at the races one day, someone suggested, well, why don't we kick on and continue on to the dogs? Let's go to uh, Harold Park, uh, which was open then. It was the Sydney dog track. So we went, so we went there afterwards and uh, had a lot of fun. Didn't have Arthur Harris's form, of course, uh, but uh, had, a, had a bet. We won some races. We lost some races. But one thing that I discovered there was whilst I was at the horse's, I really had no idea what was going on and how to assess form. I was making some money because Chris brought along these prices, but I couldn't have done that myself. While going to the dogs, I discovered I had a real understanding of what was happening in a greyhound race and what were the fact what the factors were in terms of determining a winner. So over time, when the rest of the boys didn't go out to the dogs, 
I continued going to the dogs a couple of times, a uh, couple of times a week. And then after about a year, when I was probably 19 or, or 20, I started off trying to put markets together, trying to build my own uh, market and have target prices to assess. As I'd seen, you know, Arthur Harris do back in the, uh, the horse racing days. Was I successful in putting my own markets together back in those days? Uh, with about a year's experience, probably not not particularly. Um, what I'd say is I minimised my losses, uh, kept my losses very uh, small initially, and then over time developed the sophistication of those uh, of those markets. Uh, so I did move into profitability. Now, whilst I was doing this, I was uh, in corporate life as well and worked in corporate life for 20-odd uh, for 20, 20 years. But all the time at corporate life, I maintained that, uh, that passion for the dogs, religiously went out to the dogs twice a week, whether I was living in Sydney and going out to Harold Park or Wentworth Park. I got transferred up to Brisbane for work between 93 and 98, went to Albion Park twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and then... Uh, and then uh, bet on the Sydney and Melbourne Dogs on a Saturday night. In fact, started dating my wife, who I met in Brisbane in 1993, and uh, informed her early one of the prerequisites of our relationship was that I was unavailable Monday and Thursday nights <laughs> and uh, couldn't go out on a Saturday night until the Meadows and Wentworth Park finished at about 10.30. Uh, I think I might have made an exception for weddings, weddings and funerals, but uh, that was about it. So... Over this over this time, I kept developing, if you like, my uh, my, my pricing um, through Brisbane. Went to the UK, transferred to the UK in two thousand and four to be head of financial planning for the Yorkshire Bank up in Leeds. And in that period, discovered Betfair. I think two thousand and four must have been very early days for uh, for Betfair. And back then, I was dabbling in a bit of sports betting as well, and uh, really got into the uh, sports betting with Betfair and the in-play betting as well, which, of course, was legal in the UK. Came back to Australia uh, a, few years, a few years later, and then in 2009, after a successful corporate career, uh, I was made redundant. I was made redundant, but having been with the same company for 20 years, that's got its benefits because I got a payout, which meant that I wouldn't have to worry in the short to medium term anyway about getting another job in a in a hurry. Now, during this time, I'd always harboured this uh, harboured this dream to be a bookmaker one day. I'd always loved the cut and the thrust of the track, and the you know the colour of the track, and uh, and the bookmaker role. Uh, and the plan was, well, I'll probably do this when I retire. I'll probably do this at age 60, 65 for a bit of fun. However, after the twenty year stint with my employer the redundancy check. We went overseas to uh, Europe for three months uh, and had to think about my future. And came back and thought, well, I could go out and get another job, but what I'd really like to do is give bookmaking a go for a year. See if I can uh, be successful in bookmaking. If I am, fantastic. I'll keep doing that. If not, well, I'll go back to corporate life and get a job and I won't die wondering what would have happened if I, uh, if I did that. So I wanted to go into bookmaking, um, 
wanted to work at the premier track in Australia, Wentworth Park, uh, the only track really where putters could get set with four uh, with four bookmakers being there. Uh, I know historically bookies spend time as a clerk learning the trade and so forth, but uh, Jake, I was in a bit of a bit of a hurry. I said I'd give this a go for a year, so I was keen to get straight out there. Also, I'd refined my pricing model to, to su- such a degree that I was pretty confident about my, uh, about my pricing. And whilst I'd been doing this pricing, I'd had a full-time, you know, 60-hour week, 70-hour week job as well. So I felt pretty confident if I, if I was doing this full-time, I'd only be able to enhance uh, that further. So take me back to the, uh, to the very beginning when you basically realized you had a knack or you had a an ability or a natural, um, you know, sense for, for the Greyhounds and some of the form factors, some of the things that contributed to the, you know, success of, of Greyhounds in a race. What were some of those things that you realized early on? Okay. I, I think, I think the obvious, the obvious thing people look at when they, uh, bet on Greyhound racing is how fast is the dog relative to the other dogs? And uh, what's its box? I mean, everyone knows box one's great, box five, six are bad. Well, well certainly in Australia, in the UK, of course, they've got uh, seated drawers where wide runners are in the wide boxes and uh, railers in the inside boxes and so forth. But they're the obvious, uh, they're the obvious things. Um, next level on that, uh, Jake, is the speed map, of course. And I know most of the punters you talk to in any racing code talk about the speed map imperative. Uh, with dogs probably even more so because the run to the short run to the first turn can be quite short and there's a high percentage of dogs that lead at the first corner that win. So again the simplistic way to look at a speed map is look at what are the sectional times the dogs run to the first uh, the first corner. Uh, and again any half decent greyhound punter I think looks at a, looks at a speed map. So what's the ne- next level beyond that? Next level beyond that's probably what's the running line of the dog to the first uh, the first corner, and dogs tend to do one of three things in terms of running lines to the first corner. They'll go straight ahead, they'll head towards the rails, or they'll head out wide. So, for example, if you've got a dog in the one box that's going to head out wide, and a dog in the two box that's uh, going to head towards the rails, and they've got similar sections to the first corner. There's a fair chance of a collision there, Jake, uh, at, at some stage. So maybe you should discount the time those dogs can run to the first corner in that instance. The next, the next iteration of that is, as well as the running line, what's the first step the dog takes when it comes out of a box? That might sound funny, but when a dog comes out of the box, most dogs go straight but some dogs will just, in that first step, veer to the right and some will veer to the left. So a dog, for instance, could take a first step, veer to the right, out wide, and then head back towards the rails. And again, if I'm boxed and I head towards the right and the dog outside me heads towards the left, what's going to happen in the in the first second of the race? There's going to be some sort of collision in all, in all probability. So... For me, analysing the form and having a decent depth to analysing that form, to a large degree, understanding what's going to happen in the run to the first corner, understanding what the potential are for collisions or even potential collisions, because if a dog sees a potential collision coming up, Jake, 
it may go into that collision or it might shy away and check itself and check itself out of that. So it's, it's, it's understanding what's going to happen uh, in that run to the first corner. My last step, if you like, in terms of that, I, I, I just call in my mind the psychology of the dog. <laughs> and I don't know what the dog's thinking, but I'm trying to understand what the dog might think. Um, understand that in a greyhound race, the, the weights of the greyhounds may vary between a small female dog, a bitch might weigh down to about 23 kilos, and you might have a male greyhound weighing up to about 40 kilos. Now, to use that extreme example, Jake, imagine a 23 kilo and a 40 kilo dog collide. Who do you think is going to come the better out of that collision? Well, the 40 kilo dog in all, in all probability. But what if the weights are closer together? What if it's a 28 kilo dog and a 30 kilo dog? Uh, and what does the, what, what is the 30 kilo dog, does the 30 kilo dog know he's bigger than the 28 kilo dog? And is it confident going into a collision, feeling it'll come out okay, or will it ease out of that collision, thinking it's maybe smaller than that dog? So I'm trying to understand in my form, form analysis, you know, really in depth what's going to happen in that run to the first corner, what's likely to be the outcome of that, and then have a number of uh, scenarios in terms of how the race can be run, look at the probability of those outcomes, and assign a price to those to come up with a 100% market. How critical is the, the collision component and the run to the first corner? Is that something that is, you know, 85 plus percent of what's going to happen in a race? And I guess to add to that, how much of it is random or chance? Or you might have some scenarios, but there's always an aspect of it where, or a large aspect to it is, is the chance or randomness. Yeah, I don't like using the word randomness, um, Jake, because I think dogs are highly predictable. Uh, there is a there is a chance element. You're, you're right. Uh, there's a dog. Let's say that you know a dog can be a slow beginner, and in all 35 starts of its career, miss the start. Then all of a sudden, one start it nails it nails the start. I can't do anything about that. But but you know, in, in all prob in all probability, dogs do similar things each race, but they're not machines. They're not machines, so there is some variance in there. Uh, and one of the harder parts of form analysis for, for me, look, you've got, to price, you've got to price that in what, uh, you know, that chance that you mentioned. One of the harder parts for me, which I think is measurable, is trying to understand improvement in a dog. And that might be improvement as it gets older and more mature, uh, or it might be improvement in terms of it's used to running 400 metres, now it's running five, and it gets more stamina each time. So trying to estimate that improvement I find to be quite difficult. And because of that and because there are some, uh, you know, things you can't, you can't predict, I tend to discount my market to 80%, 85 uh, for betting into it and out to 120% when, uh, when laying because... There is stuff I can't, uh, you know, that I can't predict. Uh, there is a margin for error there. But I believe the markets are reasonably inefficient as well. So I can still get a decent amount of bets, uh, you know, betting into an 80 to 85% uh, percent market there. For example, last night I had a dog assessed at uh, $3, a $3 favourite called Van Ann out of the one box. 
I knew it was a wide runner out of the one box, but there wasn't any speed out outside it. Uh, I thought it would get a decent uh, decent sort of a run. It, uh, it started at $10, $10, was backed into about uh, about $7.50. But people generally, I think, shied away from it because they thought, here's a wide runner in the one box. We don't want to be on, don't want to be on it. But if you looked at the dogs around it, you could see that it was likely to get a, a clear run through to the first corner and handle the box in that instance, albeit normally the one box would be bad for that uh, for that particular dog. I want to move over to the bookmaking side now, and, and I guess how did it go when you started out the bookmaking, and are there things you might you know want to change looking back, or did it go perfectly smoothly? Oh, smoothly is definitely not the uh, the word for it, Jake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are a few roadblocks put in my way, uh, which I didn't uh, which I didn't count on. I thought going into bookmaking that new bookmakers would be welcomed with open arms. Uh, the on-course bookmaking, on-course bookmaking had been in decline for probably the past ten or twenty years. Prior to this, was back in uh, two thousand and nine. I mean, a number of your guests I know over the past few seasons have talked about the strength of uh, you know the bookmaking rings in Australia, uh, and even the dogs where there were twenty or fifty bookies at one stage there. So I thought, given the average age of the bookmakers too, they'd welcome someone slightly younger coming in who'd, you know, help ensure the future of the, uh, of the occupation. That wasn't the case. I got a licence, albeit uh, they strongly encouraged me to go out and uh, be a clerk first and get some experience and so forth. And where I wanted to field was Wentworth Park, uh, as that was the premier betting track in Australia. Uh, there were already four local bookings in, uh, in Wenny Park, and no away uh, bookies. So I wanted to come in there as a fifth bookie, but it was knocked on the head. And I was introduced to a term, a closed betting ring. Closed betting ring means no one you can come in. Um, so they didn't want me to. They didn't want me to come, me or anyone else, to come in. Uh, the only chance they told me I'd come in is if somebody uh, somebody retired. So, uh, not prepared to take no for an answer, I offered to uh, come in as an away bookie and bet on Albion Park in Brisbane, Angle Park in Adelaide and Cranbourne in country Victoria as an alternative. That was, uh, that was agreed and it was also agreed that I could be a reserve for the local ring and if somebody was sick or couldn't make it, then I'd be welcome to turn up uh, in Steden Field. Now, having been to the track for many years, one of the things that uh, bemused me a bit was that local bookies were only obliged to take a bet to lose $1,500. Personally, I thought that was a bit soft, and I didn't think that was a way to run a successful business or grow a successful business. So I thought I'd try to shake things up, and I went out there prepared to lose 10000 on a bet at the dogs. So went out there on the first week. The usual punters were out there. Most of the big punters had deserted the dogs because they couldn't get on anymore. Uh, most of them had, in their words, talking to them later, you know, gone to the horses because at least they could get, get set or uh, gone to uh, uh, sports where they could get set. So I was a little bit bemused, actually, listening to your first guest this season, uh, Jake, who mentioned he fielded the dogs but, um, but ended up moving on because there was no money out there. It's a bit of a chicken egg, isn't it? There's no money out there when you're not prepared to take a bet. Anyway, uh, I went out there prepared to 
take uh, up to 10 grand on on any bet. I didn't do any advertising, but funnily enough, within a week or two, I reckon just about every big punter in New South Wales seemed to converge on the uh, away betting ring in Wendy Park, uh, trying to strip me. As a new bloke, they didn't know. They suspected I wouldn't have any idea what I was doing because most new bookies don't, and most of them don't last uh, don't last too long. And it's interesting. I didn't know the names of a lot of these people at the time, but uh, looking back on it now, we had literally some of the biggest punters in the world turn up to uh, Wentworth Park Dogs on a Monday night, wanting to have a bet on Cranbourne Dogs and Angle Park Dogs and Adelaide Dogs. And as one of them said to me, Julian, how good is this? I go to the horses, I can only get on for five thousand. I come to the dogs, and I can get on for ten grand. Never, you know, it's never been better. So um, took started taking taking their bets, and uh, I think they realised after a bit of time, I, I knew what I was doing, and I could hold my own. Uh, and certainly from a turnover uh, point of view, I was holding plenty, and I remember the manager at Winnie Park telling me one night that I'd held more than the other bookies in the on-course uh, tote combined. But, you know, there's a level of, there's a level of stress, of course, which also goes with, uh, with, taking, with taking big bets that, um, that, that, that I was up for. But, uh, yeah, it's hard to, hard to maintain that poker face sometimes. How did the other bookies in the ring in general respond to this? It sounds like a bit of a seismic shift in what they're used to. Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, a couple of them were betting bookmakers, so one of them in particular became one of my biggest punters because he was a you know, huge the sort of guy who'd have $100,000 on uh, you know on a, a sports bet and, and so forth. But I, I think they were they felt vindicated by not letting me into the local ring, I suspect, Jake. Uh, I mean, there wasn't a lot of conversation that went on between uh, me and the other, the other bookies there. But I think they felt vindicated in terms of uh, not having business taken away from them. And, and I think that was the concern over the closed ring, that rather than thinking from a long-term perspective in terms of how do we grow the industry, how do we get more people betting on the dogs, they were just trying to protect their own their own patch and hold on to their own patch for as long as they could. Cu- couple of memories, yeah, a cu- couple of good memories from those days. I remember taking a $33,000 bet on a, Three's on pop uh, one night. Can remember the name of Velocity Force up at Brisbane in a lowly fifth grade with thirteen hundred dollars prize money for first at a dollar at a dollar thirty. That was a good story because that one got beaten uh, at Three's on. Ended up running uh, running second, but uh, certainly got the adrenaline uh, the adrenaline racing. It was a good it was a good thing. Another big putter who uh, whose name you'd know, but I won't uh, but I won't mention. I was down 40 grand to one night. So uh, he called me over towards the end of the night. I said, Julian, come and have a chat with me. Come and have a chat with me. I came over to him and interesting enough, I went over to him and I could see there were about 12, uh, 12 blokes then forming a ring around us. And they were pretty much his disciples that follow him around wherever he, uh, wherever he goes. And he said, mate, you owe me 40 grand. I said, yeah, not a problem, mate. Uh, we'll sort it. Uh, I'll pay you tomorrow if that's okay. He said, how about we toss for it? And I said, oh, mate, no, no. He said, let me, test, let me test how big, you know, how big you are. Why don't you toss for it, mate? You know, you'll take a bet. And I said, no, no, no. Then, then, he, then he changed the terms of the equation, Jake. He said, how about I give you $2.10 <laughs> and you pick heads or tails? <laughs> now, now, I know I should have taken the bet, but I didn't. 
if I could have done taken $2.10 every week with him, I would have because I would have won longer term. But I really didn't want to be down 80 grand to him uh, that uh, that night, so I knocked it back. Albeit I've always wondered whether I should have taken that uh, <laughs> taken that $2.10. <laughs> so how did it evolve and change You know, on course with obviously much more money coming in and you know, probably more people coming to the track and, you know, a bigger overall pool of money circulating around. Was that a positive development in that industry or was it too stifling and unusual for those to latch onto it and, and ride the wave? It was positive for the for Wentworth Park, the club, uh, Jake, because what it meant is with more on-course money, they had more on-course tote turnover and the club uh, got their funding, I believe, largely through their percent through a percentage of on-course uh, tote turnover. So they had a lot of the, you know, as I said, genuinely big, some of the biggest pundits in the world come back to the dogs at Winnie Park and have their private betting rooms there, have people in their private betting rooms, commission rooms, I think they call them. Uh, so their on-course, their on-course uh, turnover went up. I'd argue also that the uh, turnover of the other local bookies would have uh, would have gone up as well. Uh, as you had the big money, and as I said, some of these big punters were followed around by a group of disciples who wanted to get some, you know, wanted to follow them in and see what they were uh, and see what they were backing and so forth. There, same thing happened at Dapto as well. Um, whilst I was local and looking to work a bit more than two days a week, I wanted to feel feel of Dapto um, being a Thursday night there, but the main city meeting in a lot of the other cities. Again, I couldn't get a spot in the local ring. There were two bookies there already. They were taking bets, would you believe, to lose $500 and they didn't want any competition. Uh, so the club decided to protect them and offer me an away space, again, where I was betting to lose 10K. But eventually the local punters there stood up and demanded I'd be able to field locally. So, so so going back to your question, yes, I think it was absolutely positive for the uh, clubs because it was bringing more people to the track. It was increasing uh, local turnover. I think it was increasing local bookies turnover too but it was smart money to a large extent jake and it's much harder to beat smart money than it is to beat mug punter mug punter money yeah absolutely i was going to ask about that i guess you have to be incredibly confident in your pricing because especially with something like greyhounds and correct me if i'm wrong but i'm guessing with a largely illiquid market for you know most of the time Mm. it's you against the punter almost every time so it's not like you you go to the rails and there's 10 other bookies and there's betfair and there's you know tote pricing or you can see some estimates about that it's probably you versus them almost every time is that fair to say it's me versus them every time absolutely absolutely and uh you're right and and there was no laying off and there's no time for laying off too on the the dogs most of the bettings coming when they're at the boxes 10 or 15 10 seconds out from the start of the race jake i mean you know you're on you're, you're on holding it uh you're holding it there so you know, I was doing huge turnovers, but from a percentage profit point of view, a lot smaller than I'd say the uh, the average uh, bookie who was holding a lot uh, holding a lot less there. It's interesting because whilst whilst I'd thought bookmaking was the answer at the time, doing this deeper deeper form and and doing this full time meant I was punting a lot more as well, and realizing I could make good money from uh, from punting. And I didn't have to be right all the time to make money from punting. While, as you can appreciate with the bookmaking, I can get nine out of ten races right and still lose on the night. If the big money comes in the race, I've missed something in. 
so you know that's tough when that, that's tough when that happens because you know I always like to understand why I've why I've lost. Have I have I got anything wrong or is it just you know that was a fourteen percent chance of winning and that was one of the four that was just the fourteen percent that played out that uh, that race. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, most races I could explain away why I'd lost. Every now and again, I, I I couldn't, and often several months down the track, I found out why uh, I didn't. So I was punting. I was punting more and more at the same time because, as I said, I seemed to I could probably control my uh, my winnings more. So punting rather than uh, rather than bookmaking. And after a couple of years of taking on the big boys, I looked back at my uh, looked back at my numbers uh, versus one particular one punter in particular who was the toughest punter I was betting against, and I was just in front. And I looked at the swings and roundabouts we'd had, and the stress that had <laughs> I suppose there had been some stress the stress that had caused along the uh, along the way, if you like, riding that uh, riding that wave with him. And uh, after a couple of years, I just got on the phone and said, "Hey, hey, mate, uh, I didn't, I didn't say uh, what bet three six five to you. I didn't say become uneconomic to me or whatever they impersonal line they I said. Hey, I've en- enjoyed the sport we've had over the past couple of years and the and the punting, but uh, at the end of the day, I'm eking out very little, very little from you. So uh, I'm going to be decreasing my limits going forward because whilst I had that that big." Uh, that big limit there, Jake. I was attracting all the smart punters to the track. Couldn't seem to get too many big mug punters to the track, though. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, once upon a time they were there, but everyone tells me the big mug punters all go to the casino now. It, yeah, okay. Now that makes sense. I wanted to ask one more question on sort of putting your board up at the track. Were you rapidly moving your prices up and down? And maybe a good example is the, the one you mentioned before. If you rated something... Uh, $3 and mm. it went up $10 for some reason or, or whatever and it was into seven fifty, like you mentioned but if that was the case um, were you going up first and putting up you know $3 in that instance or were you playing within the market as well and, and putting it up as you know $5 instead if a couple of other local bookies had it had it at ten dollars? How were you able to? Yeah, I, I'd go. I'd go. I wouldn't go up at my actual uh, actual price because. In a way, that's my intellectual property, and I don't want to give it, you know, give that away. What I actually think it's worth. So, I learned a bit. I learned through experience what the right point was to go up here. Because what I would have done initially, Jake, is instead of putting up at ten dollars, the other bookies round, I would have put up at eight. But what I discovered is that other punters might have priced that lower than eight dollars, and I'd end up getting having it backed with me at eight dollars, which I didn't want. Well, you can't lay off the ten, right? People would take the tens, and they'd take my eights as well. So, yeah. So I try, I try to go up far enough under, more like the five dollars you were talking about there, just to try to avoid taking a taking a bet on it. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. It's not like you can just lay off at ten dollars once you take the bet at eight dollars. It's probably not that simple in the uh, in the greyhound betting arena. Things firm quickly. Things firm quickly in the in the dogs, like you. Guest Ben said a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, the prices can disappear pretty quickly. So if I don't want to have a bet on something, I've got to have it unders enough that you know it's going to take quite a few rolls from the other bookies before they get to my uh, to get to my price. 
so I wound back at uh, wound back at Wendy Park and still enjoyed the book the bookmaking there and wanted to move up to the decided for lifestyle purposes to move up to the Gold Coast, but was keen to st- keep fielding on Wentworth Park, having my two IC run the stand with me on the phone and me just turning up once a month if you like, showing my face down there. And again, thought that'd be straightforward, Jake. But the New South Wales Bookies Cooperative blocked this and said I couldn't do it. Funnily enough, the ringleader at Wentworth Park, the one who told me the ring was closed, you know, four bookies previously, was pretty senior at the bookies co-op. And I suspect this was a matter of trying to get me out of the ring so the other blokes could get a bigger share of the uh, share of the money. Didn't make any sense to me them saying no because other bookies there seemed to infrequently turn up at the track, but a blind eye was turned to that. Uh, again, I'm a reasonably persistent sort of a guy, and despite my initial understanding that all New South Wales bookies needed to be licensed through the bookmakers' co someone said to me, there's been one, except, one exception in the history of racing. Now, I believe it was Robbie Waterhouse, who I was told was directly licensed through Racing New South Wales rather than late licensed through the bookies' co Don't know the history behind that. So I tried to explore that avenue and contacted Greyhound Racing New South Wales to see whether they'd licensed me directly on the terms and conditions that I talked about operating from the Gold Coast and not being there every week. They didn't know whether they could do about that, but explored and found out they could, but then were dragging their heels in making a decision, having me lodge my bookmaker's guarantee with them rather than the co-op and so forth. So just to stir things up a bit, I had a chat with Jeff Collison, uh, Jeff was the Greyhound uh, journalist at the uh, Daily Telegraph. Actually, he was a Greyhound journalist and the wine uh, columnist at the Daily Telegraph. Good combination. And um, he wrote an article about this situation from the telly. And funnily enough, with it, in a day of him publishing it, Greyhound Racing New South Wales approved me operating at Wendy Park from the Gold Coast. So uh, kept doing that for uh, another four, four or so years flying down each each month and then a couple of years ago, more from the point of view in terms of wanting to spend more time with the family, just decided to give the bookmaking side away and just concentrate on on the punting. Overall, you happy with how it all went on the bookmaking side? It sounds like there was some some decent battles going on over the years. Oh, it was great fun. I wouldn't have uh, changed anything for quids, uh, Jake. As I said, it was a dream of mine, uh, you know, ever since I started going to the dogs and I'm grateful I, uh, you know, had the guts to have a go and live that dream. I met some fascinating people in that time as well and made some great connections and, uh, you know, I've maintained relationships with some of those punters rather than bookmakers in particular. I've met through that time and they've provided other opportunities for me over the uh, over the years in terms of places they were betting. I know one of your guests a few weeks ago was talking about CityBet as an example, which was, in, for those of you who don't know, an Asian betting exchange. I mean, I've been introduced to that and a number of other betting opportunities through some of these connections I've, I've made there. So absolutely no, uh, no regrets. And... Uh, yeah, learnt, learnt plenty. I think got some got some respect from uh, some of the big players in the industry, and once getting that respect, then they were happy to share information with me and me with them as well in terms of how we do, you know, how we do various uh, various things. I wouldn't be where I was today if I was just, as I call it, sitting in a dark room doing form, which is effectively what I what I do. You know, I don't talk to trainers, I don't talk to owners or anything like 
like that. But through talking to a number of the you know punting identities I've I've met over this uh, this time, I've been able to validate a number of things I've got and uh, you know had a few things challenged that I uh, that I do. So yeah, it's been been fantastic. What's it like in 2018 as a greyhound punter now? Is it a, a thriving marketplace? Is it um, pretty slow and, and is not trending in an upward direction? Take me through your thoughts generally on how the industry is at as a as a you know as a greyhound punter now. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at the published industry figures, you'd come away thinking it's a growing, thriving industry because year after year turnover on greyhound racing has been increasing in an absolute term and increasing versus the other two at a faster rate than the other two racing codes. You know, I think if we go back 15, 20 years ago in New South South Wales and Victoria, I think greyhound racing was about 13% of overall racing uh, turnover. Uh, These days, I think it's closer to probably about 21%. But it's also growing strongly in absolute term. So you might think that's very positive, but it's not. It's not all that it seems. The way that uh, growth has been achieved is putting on more and more and more race meetings. So instead of there being, say, two or three Greyhound race meetings a day throughout Australia that the TOB and the bookies bet on, corporates bet on, today there'll probably be about 10 or 12 Greyhound meetings. So it's been funded through increased uh increased number of races but what that's also meant is firstly the turnover per race has gone down on average which is not a positive for the punter and then second there's the question of where do you get set these days and it's a struggle uh i mean back in the old days when corporates were owned by australians you know were owned locally I think the corporates understood that bookmaking was, you know, about the, the cut and the thrust. You don't win all the time. You win sometimes, you lose sometimes. If you're losing against a punter, you try to learn from them. And as a number of your previous guests have said, you, you try to take their bets as a, a, as a lead to massage your market and, and win, win overall. While the English and Irish uh, corporates who have taken over, I mean, fair dinkum, they're an absolute, you know, absolute shocker. They're just interested in signing up mugs, effectively. Uh, they're not even interested, I believe, in holding people they believe may become profitable in the future. You know, if they're backing uh, conveyances that are forming in the betting. So, despite some of them, I mean, Bet365, we all know over year, over the last few years, has had some, well, certainly in Greyhound Racing, some you know, hugely mispriced uh, some, some dogs on a regular on a regular basis. But they're one of the quickest to, to cut you off. And uh, I'm not saying I did this, but, uh, you know, recently there's been criminal action launched against some punters who had been using bowlers, um, which I think is outrageous. But uh, that certainly, you know, I think stops anyone employing the old bowler strategy in terms of, uh, in terms of betting with corporates. So for me, corporates are pretty much, pretty much dead. Uh, this minimum betting legislation in the horses – and I believe there's some in one state in the in the harness racing. At the moment, there's none in greyhound racing. Uh, Victoria's put out a proposal to do one, but the sooner we get that up and running, the the better from from my point of view. Uh, so so corporates at the moment are dead are dead to me, but hopefully minimum bet 
legislation uh, changes that. Rethink the way you see sport. Every action or play can be represented by a series of numbers. When you analyse this data, patterns begin to emerge. If you follow these patterns and develop systems, you can play the game within the game. Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. Oh, the, the merger of the TOBs, for, you know, keeps getting held out as a huge positive for punters. Uh, certainly that's the way they framed it when, uh, when trying to get it approved by the regulator. For me, it's a huge negative, huge negative. Because they'll have a monopoly uh, once they merge, and as we know, what does a monopoly do? It puts prices up, puts takeouts up, and uh, I know over the past ten years, a lot of big punters have got out of betting with the TOBs, as the rebates the TOBs have been paying have come down, and punters who relied on those rebates to make their model work have been uh, have been getting out. So I would have thought they'll disappear completely uh, when the TOB, TOBs merge. And I, you know, I, I fear in terms of what's going to happen with the, with the takeout. Um, the one positive sign there is there's a potential competitor to the TOB on the horizon, I believe, which is proposing uh, smaller takeouts and, uh, and looking to have a more global and domestic offering. So for me, it's fingers crossed in, in that space. That being said, the TOBs, on a fixed on a fixed odds uh, uh, basis, it's easier to get set with than it is with the corporates. The tabs, firstly, I don't know what's happened, but in the last year or so, they seem to be prepared to take bigger bets than they were previously. Uh, of course, also they've got cash betting terminals, uh, whether it's uh, you bet up here in Queensland or the other TABs around the country. And for the for the part of the cash betting terminals, are wonderful. Uh, and then, of course, there's Betfair. We love, you know, we love Betfair. There's good liquidity on Betfair in the betting, in the greyhound markets. I mean, I was betting on Sandown last night and quite regularly we were getting $25,000, dollars $35,000 on a race held. And on that same race, you might have had 9000 on Super Tab, 6000 on New South Wales Tab and 2000 on on Tatsbet. So, you're getting liquidity in greyhound racing on, on Betfair. And for anyone that bets on the dogs in Betfair, you might have noticed over the last year or so in the big uh, in the big dog betting meetings in uh, Victoria and WA, there's good liquidity in the market a race before the race starts. There's a market of around 120, 125% there, which at that point of time I believe is the best market in the country better than the percentages the corporates have got up and better than the percentages that uh, that the tabs have, get up, can, have got up. So, you know, for me, a lot of the business is done uh, these days through Betfair or it's done through fixed odds uh, where I can get on. Uh, from a paramutual point of view, would love to bet in there, but with the size of the pools, it's you can't have a decent bet without moving the market too, uh, too much. My betting on uh, paramutuals tends to be more around quadrillas, first fours, where there's a big jackpot pool uh, playing into it. And, of course, when there's a big jackpot pool, effectively the house margin is erased.
So, uh, yeah, it's a, I wouldn't call it a bleak landscape at the moment, but it's certainly uh, not particularly healthy. If it weren't for, if it weren't for Betfair, it'd be damn tough uh, getting a bet on Jack. So take me through the actual impact of having bets limited, accounts restricted, can't get on, you're not willing to engage with the tote pools, for example. Does that cause things like, you know, you've, you haven't been able to bet on maybe two or three dogs that you liked and then finally you're able to get a bet on. Do you tend to then overbet or does it cause other frustrations which have a negative impact or are you pretty much understanding of that and, and keep the discipline in order otherwise um, it can be problematic? Oh, look, for, for me, it's so much about discipline. If I've got a target price, as I said, I'll discount the market when betting down to 80 to 85, depending on my confidence on the race. I, I have to get that target price. I have to be, you know, true to my, my philosophy. Mispricing for me is most likely to occur in the opening market. So I'll be rushing in the morning to do a, to do a first market and trying to finish that first market before the opening markets go up. Generally, though, I won't get set for as much as I'd like on those opening markets, but I can often lock in, you know, some good some good overs there. I'll then in the afternoon, you know, fine-tune those, fine-tune those, those markets. But if I can't get set for as much as I can, well, that, that, that's just, that's just the way it is. I don't take the $2.90 instead of the three because the way I see that, it's a slippery slope. If I'm taking the $2.90 instead of the three, then why won't I take the 280 instead of the 290? And I'm getting closer and closer to my $2.50 that I actually had it assessed at. And I know there has to be a good margin of error priced into my uh, priced into my market. So it's frustrating. I mean, in the perfect world, I'd always be able to get set for what I wanted at the appropriate price, but that's just not the betting landscape. So I've just got to deal deal with that and uh, and see where I can make the model work. So has that caused you to change any of your philosophies or your approach to staking and, and bankroll management? Or have you just, you know, if you can't get a bet down at the, the right number based on your ratings and pricing, you're happy just to sit back and watch? Yeah, absolutely. A- a- absolutely. And I don't have any, you know, re- regret at the moment. I mean, just talking about the staking, uh, my staking actually is quite similar to your harness racing guest a few weeks ago uh, to Ben and just to run through that, as an example, let's say I'm uh, staking to win $1,000 a race and my price is $250. Uh, if I discount $250 by um, down to 85%, $250 turns into $2.96, which I'll round up to $3.00. Uh, because I won't get two ninety six, obviously, uh, with corporates and with the tower, round up to $3 and see if I can get set at that. So if it's $3 and I'm betting to win 1000 my bet will be 500 However, that example last night with Van Ann, it opened at, at 10 Now, I didn't average out at 10 I averaged out at $8 on it. So I still, in that example, if I was betting to win 1000 would have had $500 on, but instead of winning 1000 would have won 3500 being the $8, $8 price there. But, you know, I mightn't be able to get set for all that I want to get uh, to get, get set at. So that, that's the way it is. I've got to sit back and, and watch it. But, you know, I sit back and watch it if it wins with some regret that I wasn't fully set, but with some pleasure that I got the price, the price right. So, I mean, I think all punters 
no matter what the environment, have to deal with that issue. Jake, for me, betting's all about all about discipline. Does my betting strategy change over time? Of course it does. I mean, I I review my betting strategy and philosophy every six months. I have what I call a deep dive review, where I look at it and analyse it and think are there any tweaks I can make to make it uh, to make it better, or to respond to the uh, you know the betting environment and and so forth there. And a re- an example of that might be because of the inability to get set on win betting. Um, I started a year or two getting doing place markets as well. Place markets aren't necessarily just the win market divided by a set number because in dog racing, different dogs have a different chance at a place. There might be a dog that's a, well, Van Ann last night, its place odds would have been a lot more than, say, a quarter of its win odds because if it didn't lead, it was up near the lead, it had no chance of running a, running a place. While another dog that's a run-on dog might have been $3, but say $1.10 a place. So I developed, uh, you know, some place betting markets to try to, you know, pick up some extra revenue uh, on that side where I could find overs. Less likely, you know, less often than win betting, but opportunities arise there as well. So it is a matter of continually evolving, but for me it's got to be very disciplined why I'm making a decision outside of my philosophy. And if I'm making a decision, it's not a one-off. It's a structural change in, in terms of how I approach uh, my betting. So in that example you just shared earlier, if you rated it or you rounded it up to $3, you would bet 500 to to mm. win your, your $1,000 amount. Mm. If it was $8 or $10, you'd still bet $500. Is that Did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If I just assessed it at 3 the staking amounts all based on the price I assess it at to back. Yeah. And if you got 50 to 1, you would still bet 500 on it if you could? Absolutely. Okay. And Absolutely. so in those instances where there's a wide varying gap, obviously the one side of the coin is your, you've got a clear edge in your mind, so therefore it's it's worth having you know that amount on it. But do you ever get worried that you're missing something or the market's potentially closer to the, the, the right price or the, the better price? Or are you just backing in and know that over the long term, uh, you'll be on the right side of even those bets that have varying uh, prices versus you know your assessed price and the actual market price. I think both. I think both actually, uh, Jake. I'm always looking at what I'm missing, trying to think what I'm what I'm missing. Because in that same race last night, the dog in the six Fernando Express, I think it was, I had assessed at twenty to one, and it was two dollars eighty. Uh, it was second favourite in the market, and I. You know, I kept thinking I missed something. You know, I missed something here. And of course, I miss stuff. Of course, I miss stuff uh, from time to time. But more often than not, I think I'm going to be. I think I'm going to be right. Uh, the reason I have the, the reason I discount the pricing down to eighty five percent is to take uh, into account the fact that yes, I might miss something from time to time. Uh, but if I miss stuff on a regular basis, I'd be losing money hand over fist, I suspect. Yeah, no, absolutely. So have you got any advice for those who might be interested in getting more involved in greyhound punting and maybe they you know, had a passion for it growing up or, or, or set it to one side for a while and are coming back a little fresh? Would you have any tips for those types of people uh, you know, on the punting side or the industry in general side or some things you've done that, is, that have worked well that you're okay sharing? Yeah, I, I, I think like with any any punting um, 
Jake, you need to be, you need to really com- commit time into your analysis of the race and the and the uh, you know potential way the race is going to run. As I mentioned earlier, that run to the first corner is so imperative, and it's not just all about speed. So I think if anyone's interested in ramping up their greyhound uh, betting, uh, they've really got to be looking closely at that that run to the first corner and understanding more than just the speed map, but thinking about what's you know what's going to get through unscathed, or if there's a whole lot of if there are a whole lot of potential interference in that run. What's the back marker? What's the back marker that's going to get a run through and maybe come come from last? So it's just like anything, you know, whether it's betting or any anything you do, if you put the time in and the work and, and really try to gain an excellent understanding and then have discipline in terms of how you ex- execute your strategy, you'll, you'll get more pleasure and you'll lose less money or maybe win many, win uh, win money uh, by betting. How do you gather new ideas and even share ideas with other people or peers in the industry? Is there a good way to do that in the greyhound world? Obviously, being at the track seems like in the past was one of the best ways, but what about in this day and age? No, I don't think... uh, Well, there's no real network that I'm aware of, a formal network. Uh, Jake, I every now and again just get on the phone to a couple of people I know and respect and, and, and talk about things. And as I said, if I hadn't been through that bookmaking phase, I wouldn't have met that those people because it's a lonely life punting. I mean, working back in the corporate world, I walk into an office every day and there are people I could bounce things off. I mean, working in a, you know, sitting in a home office, uh, you've got to make the effort and get on the phone to talk to people. That's, I think that's invaluable. I mean, often it'll just help validate what I, what I already know, but, uh, but I need people to... Uh, Sometimes you you just want that peace of mind. You're doing you're doing the right thing to move forward. Yeah, it seems like one of the areas these days that it's hard to really bounce ideas off people. If you know if you're at home office all day and you're, you're betting and you're mm. there's a lot of content out there. If you're even if you're a greyhound punter or, or horse racing, whatever it might be, sports, you could be doing form and assessing prices all day every day and not have a not have a chance to get out and, and see what else is going on, see what other approaches there are and, and what's changed uh, in the last 6, 12, 18 months. Yeah, there is some good reading. I mean, I, I read books as well. Um, and I know some of your other interviewees over the years have as well, but uh, Wisdom of Crowds is one that gets mentioned uh, mentioned a lot. And I think that's relevant to, to, to some extent with the dog markets, particularly the final the final market there. Sports casting is a fascinating book. I don't know if you've read that one, Jake. No, I don't. Think, I don't think I have actually. Well, do yourself a favour on that one. Not relevant to greyhound betting, but I've got some mates that are sports betters and uh, fascinating in terms of understanding refereeing decisions in regards to hometown teams and everything in every sport around the world, and in terms of structure and process in what you do. An absolute classic is the E Myth by Michael Gerber. Been around twenty or thirty years, but. Uh, you know, if you need convincing as to why you should have structure, process, and discipline in what you do, do yourself a favour and read the E-Myth. Yeah, no, there's there's a number of great books out there that can help outside of the specific area to sort of um, 
put good process in place and good framework around what's already being done, definitely. Yeah, yeah. All right, Julian, I really appreciate your time. It's been great fun chatting. Um, you know, Greyhounds is an, is an area that you don't, I certainly don't get to talk about all the time. So it was, it was, it was great of you to share some of your insights and experience um, for the podcast. No, pleasure, Jake. Thank you. 